Welcome to Alligator Preserves, everyone. I am your host, Laurel McCarg, and I am delighted to introduce you today to a man I consider to be a Renaissance man, Denver author and many more things, Mark Shaken. So stick around. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic, because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. Mark Jacob, welcome to Alligator Preserves. Hi, Laurel. Thanks for having me on. Oh, you're so welcome. And tell me, you're in Denver. Yes. Are you buried in this white stuff right now? Well, we got a lot more snow than I think I expected. It, it just kept coming down. It, it wasn't a blizzard-like thing, but it it snowed for 12 or 14 hours. So it, it we, sh- we have a good amount. <laughs> we do too. I'm looking at the trees outside and they're just laden with snow, but bright blue sky like we generally have in Colorado. So I'm Here not complaining. Me. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Mark Shaken, I have read your book, Unfair discrimination, which we will talk about today. But first, I like for my authors to tell our audience about themselves rather than me listing a whole bunch of things. So, without going into your backstory, which we will get to later, who is Mark Shaken today? Well, who was Mark Shaken? I was a lawyer for almost 40 years. And um, in 2019, uh, just before the pandemic, Um, I stopped going to court and hung up my wingtips and um, started to pursue the other things that I had done some of, but not enough of. And so today you are? So today I write books. I play guitar. Um, We hope that we will be able to say that we are travelers again. and, um, And I volunteer a lot more than I was able to when I was practicing. Awesome. Isn't it, isn't it a tough question? I mean, I'm still working on mine. If people ask me, who are you? Because you, you know, you tend to list the things that you've done. And and I guess that's what defines us in a way, right? Yeah. I mean, lawyers, if you ask a lawyer who they are, they'll tell you that they're a lawyer. And um, as I got older, I realized, well, that's what I do, but who am I? It's not actually necessarily the defining who are you by answering the question, what do you do? And I think we are different. We have different answers as we mature, which I think is kind of cool. You certainly have had different answers and we will get to that. So tell us what was your debut as a storyteller? When did you know that you could tell a story or write a story? And I'm I'm thinking maybe like way back where you, did you tell stories to your friends or your parents, or did you know that you were going to be a storyteller someday? I don't think I did. Um, I liked to write. um, And I I started writing more seriously in high school. um, And then was an American studies major in college, which is a combo of English and American history, literature and American history. And when I graduated from college, I actually thought, well, maybe I could take a, a couple of years off and write the great American novel or the not so great American novel. <laughs> uh, however, that would have worked out. Uh, but my parents uh, perhaps had a more rational view of what might 
come after college. And eventually, after some vetoes of things I could have done, I sort of settled in on going to law school. And that that, that, did, that impacted the ability to creatively write uh, by uh, a lot. Uh, there's not enough time. <laughs> oh, I, I'm sure. When I was teaching language arts, you know, you would prepare for every day. You would spend all day with the students. You would then have to take home their work and and spend hours grading it and then start the cycle all over again. So very little time for a teacher's brain to be very creative. I can imagine for a lawyer's brain, it would be even that much more difficult. Lawyers are storytellers, and that is part of the trade. And so um, in some sense, for the most, for the bulk of my professional career as a courtroom person, you know, storytelling was what you did. Right. And you were specifically a bankruptcy lawyer. Yes. Bankruptcy Correct. attorney. Correct. All right. All right. Now, Unfair Discrimination is the third in a series of books. I'm going to give you three floors to deliver an elevator pitch to our listeners. What's the meat of unfair discrimination? Uh, in unfair discrimination, the star of the book, my star lawyer, is um, a black woman, Josephina Jillian Jones, 3J to her friends. And she's back and she takes on a, a representation of um, a committee of unsecured creditors who are owed a ton of money by a, a rural real estate developer. The leader of the of the um, committee is a, a white nationalist and um He's reluctant to hire her because she's a black woman, but he does because it's only business. Um, when things start to go poorly uh, for him in the in the arena of when am I going to get paid back and how much, he gets uncontrollably angry and begins to um, act out in uh, ways that I won't explain to what he might do and what he's thinking of doing because that would give away the book. Uh, with respect to both the the people that owe the money, the debtors, 3J, because she's a black woman, and um, one of the other lawyers, main lawyers in the in that particular uh, book, who is Jewish. Uh, so that gave me the opportunity to kind of use all of the parts of the formula that I'm working on, uh, my little gumbo of, of what's in the, the different 3J books. Quite a cast of characters. And I'm assuming that you don't have to read them in order because I didn't read the first two. Your first two being Fresh Start and Automatic Stay. Do you have, do you have copies of those you can hold up? And I'll hold yeah. up this. And if you're just listening to this interview, this visit with author Mark Shaken, you'll have to go to the YouTube video and see his the first two books in the series, in the three book series. All yeah. right. So, so you don't have to read them in order, right? Because they you each have. You don't. I, I don't think you do. Okay. I think I, in each book, I've I've introduced 3J back to the reader in a way that hopefully won't bore the return readers and um, hopefully will give the, the new reader a chance to um, understand who she is. I would say you did that. So good job with that. So you were a commercial bankruptcy lawyer for 41 years. Are we talking 41 years? Yes. Do you wish you'd left the practice sooner? Um, well, boy, that you think that would be a yes or no question, right? But uh, and it may be that no lawyer can ever answer a question, yes or no. I, I, I've always thought that I was a bit of the uh, reluctant or accidental lawyer. I went to law school 
to some extent to appease my parents and to a very large extent to um, give myself three more years to figure out what I would do with with my life. And, you know, when I got out of law school, I immediately worked for a bankruptcy judge, which is how I kind of got into that line of work, the judge who I loved and still do. Um, and the next thing I know, you know, I was working at a really large law firm in Houston during the oil crisis of uh, the, the early and mid 80s. And um, the next thing I knew, I'd been doing it for over, you know, 35 years. And on and off, I gave a lot of thought to should I really be continuing to do this and came up with some, some ideas, dreams, pipe dreams, crazy ideas of other things I could do. Um, but after, w- once I started getting pretty close to the 40 year mark, I just thought I was old enough. I was mature enough to use your word, perhaps. I'm not sure if my wife would agree with that, but <laughs> I was old enough to make a decision to um, try some other things. Well, the only thing I remember from the law course I took back in the 80s is that tort has nothing to do with tasty pastries. It does not. It does not. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> There's nothing, nothing tasty about a good tort. Nothing tasty about a good tort. <laughs> oh my goodness. I should maybe, I think I still have my notes from that class. Probably a lot of them are scribbled and then illegible as I fell asleep. That's <laughs> mm. <laughs> some heavy stuff. And so you've got a lot of legal jargon, legal legalese in the book, but it was fascinating because I learned a lot. And the fact that there is such thing as unfair discrimination, right? So just give our listeners a little idea about the different classes of discrimination. How can there be something that is unfair discrimination? Because discrimination is unfair. I know you talk about that. So each of the book's title come from some phrase in or around the bankruptcy code. Mm -hmm. So fresh start, automatic stay are all um, very well-known bankruptcy uh, concepts or statutes to bankruptcy lawyers. Um, unfair discrimination is another concept in, in in bankruptcy that that kind of fit the greater view of what I'm doing with the books in trying to not have them be just a legal thriller, but give me a chance to be a social commentator perhaps as well. And it, it's such an odd phrase because uh, in in the real world, uh, in a conversation, if you use the phrase unfair discrimination, somebody would say, well, isn't all discrimination unfair by its nature? And yet in the bankruptcy code, discrimination is okay amongst different creditor groups as long as it's not unfair. And of course, in Congress's infinite wisdom, it did not define unfair and left that for the judges to figure out what's fair and unfair. And uh, in unfair discrimination, the 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 bad guy who was the leader of the creditors committee, the white nationalist, if he's going to be treated differently than all the other creditors, he's going to scream that that's discrimination and it's unfair. And the lawyers are all going to say, well, but it's it may be discrimination, but in this situation, it's perfectly appropriate. Um, and that's kind of the the, the legal east uh, hook of the book which gives me a chance to, you know, maybe have a double entendre uh, as it relates to 3J because she's a black woman fending off this crazy guy that hates the long list of everybody that white nationalists hate. Right, right. Uh, One thing that, I mean, I found several things very interesting and and fun. This, is it pronounced Vignere Cypher? 
Yes. The, the vigne, it's, it's a French word, I guess. And for those of you who could see it, look how pretty that is. <laughs> it's so there are things that get hacked and codes that are used. And this veneer cipher is, is fascinating. Tell, tell listeners a little bit about that. So one of the components of, of the books has something to do with American history because I have something to do with American history as far as education goes. And um, Kansas and Missouri uh, and Kansas City in particular, where the book is set, was really at the forefront of the Civil War and the lead up to the Civil War. So in the book, Woody Clark, who's the bad guy, um, views himself as kind of a, a, a reconstituted Confederate general leading the troops. In the Civil War, the Confederate generals used the Vignet cipher to transmit messages to each other uh, in, the, in a way that if they were intercepted by the, the, the North and Grant and his, his troops, that they couldn't decipher what was being said. Um, so Woody uh, uses the same cipher in in his communications to his you know quote troops, uh, and part of the the twists in the book are you know uh, is three J well three J and her team figure this out how will they crack it you know how are they going to be able to because it's an almost uncrackable uh, cipher even in the the computer age it's it's almost beautiful in its simplicity and it all uses the cipher to to create the cipher and to decode the cipher all use that same table that appears on one of the pages in the book. It it is beautiful, and I would encourage <laughs> listeners and viewers to look it up and maybe even play with it. I don't know. I was uh, it was it, fascinating. It is fun, and you know Dan Brown shouldn't have all the fun when it comes to uh, crypt- cryptography. So <laughs> <laughs> the little cipher ring, drink more Ovaltine or whatever it was in that that Christmas story. Yes. <laughs> so we are in an age now where you know you've got Chat GPT and you've got people freaking out and you've got everything is automated and you can turn on your everything from far away. And, and now people are getting a little concerned and you use, you use that technology. Um, and I had never heard the ter- term IOT, the internet of things that you have in here, which helps people figure some things out. Talk a little bit about IOT and the whole so I, IOT thing. Is- it's a real thing. Um, each of the books has some tech uh, aspect to it because that's the world we live in. And it, it's kind of fun to grab one of those, learn more about it, and then write about it and somehow incorporate it into the book. Internet of Things is a phrase that a British tech person uh, coined you know, 15, 20 years ago as we all started to have smart appliances, smart technology things you can talk to. You can tell your coffee maker, you know, brew a pot and it will for you. You can um, interact with your stove on on your apps, the same with you know most of your appliances. If you have a music system in your house that generates the sound that comes out of the speakers with Bluetooth, it's an IoT. It, it's, there's billions of IoTs on the market and they're not terribly secure. You know, people buy uh, the coffee maker and they talk to it and tell it what to do. And they don't think about, is that, is there a firewall? Is there a password? Cause they don't put a password in of course. And in the book, the IOTs uh, are what Woody uh, uses or tries to use to, to kind of get into the head of the people that owe him the money. Cause he thinks they're, he thinks that this is a big plot 
by them to not pay him and that they set him up. And um, uh, that part of the book was kind of fun because it took a lot of research and it, I wanted that to be as accurate as I could could have it. So that's not fiction. So the, the books tend to mix fiction and nonfiction without necessarily telling the reader which is which, which kind right. of drove kind of drove my editor crazy because she kind of <laughs> ran off to the internet to Google <laughs> a lot of this stuff to see, was that fiction or is that real? <laughs> so. No, I mean, I, I did the same thing. I mean, I, I looked some things up because it's like, oh, this is, this is really interesting. And I, I don't know about it. And, you know, that's how we learn. But, you know, you, you talk about Clark and how he thinks that there's a plot. I mean, you're very, you come right out and say it from the beginning. I mean, the, the people who are plotting against him are plotting against him. So that's no secret. You have unique points of view in here. So there are chapters from different characters' perspective. And what really, oh, I guess took me by surprise is the first time Clark gave his rendition of what had just happened. And so you do that throughout. You have the antagonist, Clark, uh, spouting really, really ugly things. Those those chapters were hard to read because they're so so white supremacist, so unfiltered, right? So what what would you say to someone who says that even your villain has to have a redeeming quality? Because I tried hard to find a redeeming quality in Clark, and uh, hmm. so my I, I I'm not sure I uh, my villains don't often have redeeming qualities. So it's easy to hate them. And some of my protagonists um, are flawed. And so it's sometimes hard to like them. Uh, in the in Fresh Start, the first book in the series, one of the commentators said it was the clash of two unscrupulous people coming you know, together. <laughs> and uh, one of those two unscrupulous people owed all of the money and the other one was the banker. And um, you could come away disliking her, the banker, uh, easily and him conflicted as to whether you liked him or not. So I, I uh, didn't write Woody to have redeeming qualities. And um, if he did, it was probably accidental. And maybe I should go back and do another edition to remove whatever the redeeming quality is. But the point is that he should be reviled by the reader. And it should be a little hard to read uh, some of the chapters, certainly the ones where I shift to first person PO right. point, point of view. And you're in his head and listening to how he actually thinks, and it's horrible. It's, it is horrible and, and horrifying. Yeah. Um, uh, there again, the editor, when she got to that kind of parts, she would write me the email that said, "Okay, I'm on this chapter, and he's talking, and I have to go throw up." <laughs> so, so, but that's that's that is part of what I'm hoping for. That it's not, uh, it, it's so in your face that you can't miss how to feel about him, and. The reality is, is that there are some really horrible people. So, unfortunately, yeah, Yeah. right. So, did you ever have a client as horrible as Clark? Yes, I don't. I don't. If I'm doing this right, and 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 I'm even marginally good at it, none of the characters in any of the books will reflect the client. A, I'm probably not supposed to do that, even (laughs) after I've left the practice of law, and and B. I was mostly very lucky. You know, I had I had good clients, and you know they weren't all perfect, but they needed help, and they were there to get help. 
Um, I had cases in which there were Woody's in them. And so that part is, you know, people, not clients, but in, involved in the case in some fashion. So I've bumped into more than a few people over the decades who held views different than mine um, and were happy to share. And they're really, you know, part of the book is the, the notion of something called the posse comitatus, uh, the law of the county. Um, mm-hmm. And Woody reveres the posse comitatus, and he considers his group to be one of the many posses throughout the United States. They're one of the many white nationalist groups that that buzz around. Um, so, so you know, again, mixing sort of fiction with nonfiction kind of gets you to the the gumbo that equals. Woody Clark. So that was a really long answer without telling you whether there's any clients in the book, but I hope there's, <laughs> I hope there's not. <laughs> no, well, I, I hope you didn't have those either. So you chose your protagonist to be a, a Black woman. Have you had any fallout from people saying, oh, cultural appropriation, and how do you, you know, how do you do that? <laughs> no, I... I feel like I've been lucky because that was certainly something to think hard and long about before writing Fresh Start, the first book. Um, I've had nothing but good feedback. That could be that the the world is is fine with it. That could be that the people that have a bad reaction to it put the book down, threw it away, and didn't give me any feedback. So you never know. It was important to me to do um, the the protagonist, the main character, as a Black woman I'm not either, of course. But the alternative, it seemed to me, would be to either have a very secondary character that was the only person of color or or uh, from a minority group or a marginalized group, because I'm a white man, and therefore all I really know is white men, and therefore all I really should write about is white men. And to me, that would be not reflective of modern-day law firms, which are getting better wouldn't be reflective of uh, my world and wouldn't be reflective of the, the United States. And it's also part of that message that's something other than the legal thriller that I'm trying to kind of put out there. But I have to I have to acknowledge I am not a black woman. While I can I could watch for 40 years how hard it was to be a woman or a black woman or a black man or any person of color in a law firm to to advance and the extra hurdles that one would have to get over. I could see all of that. I could understand it. I could try to help in my own way, make it better. But I really don't think that I could ever know what it's truly like to be a black person in a white man's law firm or a woman in a, in a man's law firm. So some people also will say, you have to write what you know. Obviously, you know law but you don't know what it's like to be a black woman. And yet you portray her, I, I think very well. And so what, I mean, what is, what do you say when someone says you have to write what you know? Well, I know law firms and better or worse. I was in, I was in a couple of them for a really long time. And I, I, I did watch the firm um, begin and not just not my firm, but all firms begin to, to do the right thing. And not just hire somebody who is black, but try to address, you know, some of the problems and the concerns that go along with being, you know, the only black face in a white room of men. I think there's more, and I think law firms have started to figure this out as well as other places, not fast enough, but they'll they'll get there. I think there's more to it than just hiring somebody and say, okay, we hired somebody who's a person of color, you know, have a great career, you know, it. 
there's this sort of tribal thing that that I think is important in law firms. And the the tribal thing is, you know, you have to have a sense of purpose, you have to have a sense of trust, and you have to have a sense of belonging uh, to really stay in the tribe and to make it in the tribe. And if the law firm is the tribe, the purpose is easy. All law firm, all lawyers have a sense of purpose. You have clients, and they need things done. You know, yesterday. But the trust and the belonging is tough because it doesn't it doesn't really work and it doesn't really stick unless they have all three, mm-hmm. and you have to kind of create an environment where all three can, can exist. And there's some of that dynamic in the books because her mentor uh, William Pascal is a is a, a white guy from a farm in Western Kansas, so that you know they with a totally different upbringing. She's the she's the kid from the lower ninth ward in new orleans and he's the the guy whose family raised wheat in western kansas and so and yet you know as we as we meet them um he's figured out a way and she's figured out a way for the, at least with, within that little tribe the two of them in the bankruptcy group there to have that sense of purpose trust and 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 belonging and you've got great dynamics between the two as well and i mean you deal with a lot of issues here you deal with ethics and you know back to the whole uh when people are trying to find out information through that iot uh situation the the ethics of that come about and so did you ever in your practice did you ever feel like you were walking a line i think it it comes up um and you know that line's the facts sort of dictate the line and yet you know different lawyers will see the line differently and it'll be in a different place on the spectrum of what you should or shouldn't do you know there's a whole lot of uh, when you're dealing with the line there's a whole lot of uh, the ends justify the means um yeah. that you go through and think about and you know how far how close to the line will you get and how how far over the line will you cross to get the result that's necessary and uh, that this part actually really bothered the, my judge <laughs> in his retirement when he read the book, I got a, a great email from him about you know the ends don't always justify the means and the lines there for a purpose and all of and all of which is absolutely correct. But it creates some more you know some more ethical tension and even moral tension for uh, and mainly that's for Pascal in the in the third book. Mm-hmm. Um, it shifts between the two of them and the other books because it's in, in it, it's a part I, I enjoy kind of challenging in, in the writing and, and and it is something that lawyers have to deal with. You know, yeah, clients might yeah. be much more willing to go over the line, and then the lawyer's job is to pull them back and say you can't do that. So right, right. What's the most controversial thing you've ever done in your life, or can you say controversial? Yeah, I was. I was not a particularly controversial. I don't think I am a particularly controversial person. So I, 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 I none comes to mind. Well, that's pretty uh, good. We'll keep going, and I'll think oh, of. Uh, uh, I'll blurt it out <laughs> if it comes if it comes uh, to mind. Yeah. All right. For those of you just joining us today, we are visiting with Mark Shaken the author of Unfair Discrimination, which we're talking about today, and so many more books. Mark, what's the greatest challenge you've ever had as a excuse me as a writer? What's what's been your greatest challenge? I think being a lawyer for so long has helped me meet some of the challenges that that all writers have. Um, how to be organized? You know, lawyers who read, you know, 
anally organized that's drummed into us from the first day we were in law school. It kind of changes your DNA. So organization, which is important for a writer, in my my view, uh, research, outlining, all of those things are challenging because you want to write the book. Um, it's in, You have this story inside of you, you want to put it down on paper. Um, and I think that the for me anyway, being organized, coming up with a routine that that works for me, uh, and not not being afraid to set the book aside to research something to make sure that what I'm about to say is is correct or correct enough. Those to me, those are the challenges. The biggest challenge I had was switching from nonfiction to fiction. So setting aside whether any judge that I ever practiced in front of thought what I had written that evening before was fictional as opposed to a good argument. Um, setting that that aside, I had never written fiction before, maybe in high school, maybe, you know, a two-page something or other, but nothing like like writing a book. And, and a series quite, at that. Yeah. And, and a series, right. And developing characters, like creating these people out of, out of you know, thin air. Uh, and then being consistent with who they are. I have this spreadsheet that folks uh, that I've shared it with are, are laugh because it has every character in all the books and it gives a little blurb, my blurb anyway, of what I think that they are and what I think might, you know, get revealed or come next. And um, the more you write in a series, the more, actually the more challenging that gets so that you don't say something in book four that's completely inconsistent with the introduction of three J in book one. So, you know, fiction is different and it, for me, it requires a lot more discipline um, than writing essays or writing, you know, nonfiction. Are you in a writing group? Are you, do you have uh critique people in your life? Uh, um, that's a really good question. So one of my best friends at the law firm, um, when she heard that three J was coming out in the first book and was going to be a black, woman um said to me uh oh we better find somebody to read this for you and that i, I hadn't really ad- addressed i hadn't finished the book yet and so i hadn't really addressed in my thought process would i have test readers or beta readers and what was i asking them to do and what was i going to take away from whatever they said other than catching you know typos and grammar problems and um i don't is the simple answer i i don't because i'm i'm still not entirely sure what the the feedback will tell me if the feedback for example told me you're a white man and you shouldn't write a book with a a, a black woman lead you know that's a fair that's a fair comment but i'm not going to change so that's not going to help right. um if if it's the storyline then i kind of look to the editor to be taking care of that with me and 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 she does she's great and uh, i think she she since that's her job I think she's better at that than a beta reader would be. So the, I mean, the short, the long and the short of it is I don't drop a lot of hints to people that ask what's coming next. And I don't use beta readers to help me because I'm still unclear how they'd help. Ah, so I, I, and Chafee County Writers Exchange, and there's a critique group that meets a couple times a month. And I was very hesitant at first to join because for, for some of the same reasons as you, and I've been, I've been amazed at the feedback I've received that's been really truly helpful especially with and if and if you're looking for specific things like are you confused by anything or things like the uh, consistency right um readers will pick that up readers will say oh you know earlier on you said this but here you're saying this 
And um, if you use the same word over and over that you don't realize, but someone else does. And like I have a tendency sometimes of writing fast, writing a, a fast scene quickly. And they might say, I want more. I want you to slow down. So pacing, stuff like that. I would highly encourage you to so join a group. I, I didn't answer one part of your question. Yes, I am in a writing group, um, <laughs> the Cherry Creek Writing um, Group uh, here in Denver, but I don't share with them the current book <laughs> that I'm working ah. on. I, I write other things on the side and and then they read it and, and we do share uh, critiques. So in part, I get some feedback, but at the moment, not as it relates to the book. I, I do, you know, I'm really lucky. My editor is Melanie Mohall and- I know Melanie. Hi, Melanie. She is really good about, you know, too much legalese, <laughs> over-lawyering. Nobody's going to want to read that much about it or or flesh this out kind of, uh, to your point, you know, um, slow down and say more. Um, and um, I really trust her, her expertise and her feedback. And, she, you know, she's not a lawyer, which is even better. Right. Um, so um, I think I get that I get a really good dose of feedback from her and she does more than maybe you know the average editor might do. And there's a plug for Colorado Independent Publishers Association, right? SEPA, yes. which is a, a great organization exactly. with so many people who can help writers in all stages of their writing. It's it's a fabulous group. So you railed against wearing a suit and tie and sitting behind a desk all your life. You never wanted that. And then all of a sudden you're doing it for 41 years. What do you wear when you're writing? Or or is that an inappropriate question? What are you wearing? I, I, I do I do write with clothing on. Um and I just whatever's comfortable. I don't have a a particular robe or something that I have to put on in order to be able to generate, you know, words. Um and I interestingly I don't have a particular room in the house where I have to be. And luckily, with the advent of laptops, I can you know, be anywhere in the in the townhome and 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 write. And so, just anything that just feels you know like a comfortable place and a comfortable setting that day um, seems to work. And are you disciplined every day? Are you an everyday writer? Yeah. So um, I am. Um, maybe another lawyer thing because lawyers basically write every every day um, something, and I am. And for me, and, and there's a million different answers to this question. If you, I'm sure, um, if you talk to a million writers, they would all say something slightly different. But I I need the the discipline of knowing. So I book appointments with myself on my calendar, and I sit down and I would write. And the appointments are always for two hours. Um, and if I only write 10 words in those two hours, then it was a bad day, but so it goes more often. And the two hours is a, as a threshold, it's not a maximum. So if things are going well, I can, if I have the time, I can drift into whatever last night, you know, I was sitting there completely lost track of time and, uh, Lauren, my wife was, you know, waiting to start dinner and finally came up and said, you know, what's going on. And I had completely lost track of what time it was. Um, blowing through the two hour limit. So I do that five days a week, sometimes six. And I usually stay with the book all seven days, meaning I'll use Sunday to go back over everything, edit um, as I go, look for consistency, um, listen to something I wrote you know, two days ago and decide, oh, I don't like that. Um, the way that came out, I could do that better. Isn't it wonderful when you're when you lose track of time when you're in the flow and things are just going? I mean, did you actually stop for dinner? 
or did you keep going? I, I did. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Yeah, I, I, it is great. I mean, it is fun. It, it And you kind of get into character. And, you know, so for me, uh, yesterday, I, I, I lost myself in one of the characters in the new book as he was talking to his his twin brother in the book. And um, kind of li- sometimes I, I say these things out loud so I can kind of hear what each of the characters might sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had just decided, well, that doesn't sound like anything that his name in the book is Darius. That doesn't sound like anything that Darius would have said. <laughs> and it's some- the topic was something he was going to say, but not the way he he said it. And so that started me off with uh, on, a, on the path of, you know, trying to to have myself talk to myself, so playing both brothers, and then you know writing down what each was saying when it sounded good. What a great a technique! That's a yeah. that's a that's a wonderful way of hearing. Yeah, dialogue and dialogue. Oh, it's so important because if it's forced, if it doesn't sound natural. Boy, you can really you can really turn off a reader. So that's you know that's great. Uh, it, is this book that you're talking about? Is that book four in this series, it or is be, that a different yeah. one? It'll no, be book it, four. It'll be big book four called Cram Down. I'd always hoped that I could do four of 3J and then kind of step back and and assess uh, whether I could take any more of that the, the characters and maybe whether the world could take any more of the characters. Um, you know, I don't know if I'm Kinsey Milhone, I'll get all the way from A to Z on, <laughs> on my, my books, but it, it is an interesting you know, thing because there's more stories in me, but I don't know whether you know the world is ready for five books that have something to do with bankruptcy it's not a, a genre that you find a lot of on amazon if it, you search no it's it's not and so you have a, a unique niche so, okay let's go back to when you were little again you never got a spider bite you never became spider-man and you wanted to be you wanted to be a kid who could swing from building to building and save people and all that so if you could be any superhero now what superhero would you be? Spider-Man in a heartbeat still. Tell that me never, why. Tell me why. That never went away. Because uh, Peter Parker, who is Spider-Man for the few people in the world that don't know that, um, <laughs> you know, he's he grew up in Queens. I grew up in Queens. He lived in a high rise. I lived in a high rise. Um, he was a loner. I was a loner. And he's flawed. And he's very, he, he, he's always over-evaluating himself, <laughs> um, which is part of the his to me, uh-huh. his his allure. I like that, and and he doesn't always win easily, <laughs> and as a result, he was always someone that that I figured some of that was in me, you know, the loner and this the over self evaluation, and all I needed was the spy, the you know getting bit by a radioactive spider. That was the only thing missing from the equation. So <laughs> so I, you know that doesn't that hasn't changed. If if you know I woke up one morning and realized I had been bitten here in Denver by a radioactive spider, I'd probably tell Lauren that I was going to take a couple of months off from from the marriage and go swing between the buildings and save the world. <laughs> and and what would be her response? She I think she'd probably say to go for it. <laughs> <laughs> To go, she she's had to listen it. to this for you know for forty five years. So, <laughs> wow, would she be would she come along and be a superhero sidekick with you? She she'd be my Mary Jane. All right, all right, <laughs> all right. You know, if she listens to this and she comes back at you, don't blame me <laughs> for any follow up that might happen. She's heard it all before, <laughs> I'm sure. So, music plays a big part in 
your book. I'm assuming maybe in your other books too. Why? Because it's a huge part of my life. I've played guitar, not necessarily well, but I've played guitar since I was 11. So that's you know 50 plus years now. And I just love music and what music can do. And for me, music is someplace I can go and and um, and be either with somebody playing or alone playing. And so it works you know, in a variety of settings. I love jazz. Kansas City is a, a historically huge jazz hub. It was one of the three or four jazz um, hubs in the United States during the, the heyday, uh, the well, the beginning of jazz in the teens and the 20s along with you know, New Orleans, um, Chicago, and, and New York, probably. And 3J being a New Orleans kid has you know jazz pumping through her blood, and she gets to Kansas City and adopts the sort of desire to know all of the history of the Kansas City j- jazz that she can get her hands on. So it gives me a, a nice chance to give her something that I know and that I love that she can know and love. And so there's a it's a bit autobiographical, right? When your character sits down with his guitar and plays alone. Yeah. So, um, yes. So Pascal is the guitar player in the bunch. She doesn't, we don't know that she plays an instrument yet. We haven't figured, we haven't been told that yet in any of the books, but she loves jazz, which she got from her father in New Orleans, um, her love for jazz. Um, he plays guitar. And so when he's doing music or playing guitar or in the new book if you see a whole bunch of chords in a row that he's strumming which are listed you know that that's me um for sure and one of the unusual but fun marketing tools that i've done with the books is i'll i'll have pascal in a book play a song or talk about a song that he's working on mm-hmm. he never really fully explains to 3j much about the song and she always tells him oh i'd love to hear it and he never plays it for her so after the books come out, there's usually some social media post I do of that song because it's my song that I wrote, and I'll post it and say something like, you know, in in unfair discrimination, Pascal is working on a song called "Don't Ever Change," um, which is what the chords are in the book, which is a song of mine. And mm-hmm. I say, I'll say, this is how I imagine Pascal would play and sing the song in the book. And those posts are, are kind of fun. I don't know if the world has figured out <laughs> whether that's a great marketing tool or not, but I have fun with it. Could that could music be your next career? I doubt. Or is, you you've, doubt never it. Heard me, you've, <laughs> you've certainly never heard me play, and you've definitely never heard me sing. So, well, not well. Do do you have anything on YouTube of you doing those things? I don't. The only thing that you could find to listen to would be on. Facebook. So Twitter was a problem because it doesn't allow the long, longer songs. So it cuts let's just it say, off. let's just say that Twitter is a problem period and move on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good with that. Yes. Um, <laughs> but you know, LinkedIn and Facebook will allow you to post something like that without regard okay. to the size of the file. So if you were to go to either of my um, Facebook or LinkedIn pages and noodled around there, you'd find three or four songs I've written that I recorded in a studio and and they're up there for the world to either listen to or, or go, huh, what's this about? <laughs> All right. So you're going to send me links because we're going to have links in my show notes after, after this. Okay. You are also, and this comes back to my calling you a Renaissance man, your photography is stunning. Holy mackerel. Well, thank when, you. When did that start? Um, I'm colorblind. What? And, 
uh, yeah, so I'm colorblind and it's somewhere sort of in the middle range. It's not severe, but it's well, well, well more than just you know, slightly colorblind. And when I uh, was in um, high school, there was an art requirement of all things in this really tough inner city high school I went <laughs> to. Uh, yet they they thought it was important to require everybody to do something artsy. And I blew that off completely. Um, you were supposed to take that class before the end of your sophomore year. And I didn't do that because there was absolutely no way I was going to be in a class where color was the the main theme and and have to sit through the fact that I can't tell the difference between you know blue and pink or purple and blue or red and orange, you know, all the things that I confuse. So I got called into the principal's office and told him this whole story and wanted some kind of you know exemption because I wasn't going to sit through the class. And he said, not a problem. They're now offering a black and white photography class. Ooh. So he's, he solved my problem, <laughs> he says. And I, I'd never photographed in my life. And, um, you know, like so many things in high school, some things you really like and some things you're influenced by the person teaching it to you, mm -hmm. if you really like them. Yes. And photography was both. So Mr. Martin, um, who had an icon, and I were in class together for two years. And I learned a lot. Um, that was film day and no digital. And then I was on, I, I photographed for the college newspaper and all of those kinds of things. But my real thing that I loved was sports photography, which is kind of what I've done all kinds of photography. I had a portrait studio in Kansas city. I, but what I love is sports photography. It happens fast. It happens over and over again. So, you know, things go on uh, at breakneck speed and, that's mostly what I try to do these days, not exclusively, but mostly what I what I do. It it is as I said, it's stunning. It's it's so beautiful, and you're you're you are so right there. You must have great equipment. And listeners, go to Mark's website. I'll have a link to that too, and check out his photography. It is truly you. You are truly gifted with. Well, thanks. What you see, so the, any so the the camera does all the color work. I do everything else. I, I right, don't, but I, I don't argue with the camera. Whatever color well, things comes out, they come out. Yeah, you definitely see things. Any any disasters in any of your photography assignments? No. Anyone ever get, land on you? <laughs> oh, well, that yeah. Um, I've been squashed a number of times <laughs> sitting courtside. I, there was I don't know how I got this idea, but I had I've never photographed women's roller derby. And somehow I got the idea that before I died, I ought to do that. And they had a really big following in Kansas City and they would they would skate, you know, before six or seven thousand people. And it, it was raucous. And so I decided I would go. And uh, one thing about, you know, having the little credential hanging on your, your chest is you get incredible access. So one of the ways, one of the big ways you get good pictures is you're right there next to the action and the th three or four of the women came flying around the curve and off the track and on top of me and i was laying on the bottom of the pile and it was being broadcast live of all things on some time warner sports channel in kansas city and uh, laying on the bottom of the pile all i can remember hearing the announcer say is oh my god the photographer has been crushed under the pile and did anyone get a get a picture of that no, no. Everybody laughed. They thought it was hilarious. And I didn't get hurt, um, luckily. So, but you are right there. And, you know, things like football, uh, where there are really big men moving very fast, you have to be a little conscious of where they are and where you are and be ready to bail out. Um, 
you know, basketball, you tend to sit under the basket. And if you watch Nuggets games on TV, every once in a while, a cameraman gets crushed by a player who can't stop. So what you hope is that you're okay, of course, but more importantly, that you haven't done anything to hurt the player because they could, you know, they could break something if they fall uh, on you. Yeah. I was going to say, you don't want to hurt your equipment. (laughs) You want to get that shot as they're landing on you. Yeah, equipment's insured, more worried that the player doesn't get hurt. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's awesome. So back to your life as a Renaissance man, you you have done some crazy things. And I and you talk about your father in one of your essays, getting different jobs for you. You've been, let's see, you, you played baseball, you want to be a baseball star, you want to be a basketball star, you wanted to be a, a guitar prodigy, you were a road line painter, which is hilarious. And then when the, when those went crooked, you put the little sprinkles in the paint, which I thought I was I was wondering how that happened. So someone like you goes and sprinkles fairy dust in the things to give to give sparkles. You were a forklift operator and a septic tank troubleshooter. Now that wasn't what you wanted to be your whole life. Um, no, not really. Um, all of that happened. Uh, I think, as I look back and I'm older and wiser now, as my sort of resistance uh, <laughs> movement to figuring out something that would be more sustainable for a, a, a life of, of you know working. And um, the fork, as an example, the forklift job was a, actually a great job. The crew, the crew I was with was was really nice and fun, and but I was a terrible forklift operator, as it turned out, and they weren't really good teachers either. So. Um, you know, looking around for the skill set to uh, find something to do with a, a life when you're a liberal arts major, you know, and 20 or 21 years old is um, some, for some people, it's just obvious and I envy them. And for others like me, it's just a lifelong endeavor to figure out what to do. Well, what do you want to be when you grow up? Exactly. What I'm do asking I want you. To be when I, oh, what do I want to be when I grow up? Well, exactly. Actually, might have been a good answer too. Um, you know, I, 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 I don't. I like what I'm doing now. I, I, at times, I liked being a lawyer in a large law firm. Not always, but at times. And um, I don't want to go back to that. There's been lots of joking at the firm about now that I've done my sabbatical, am I coming back? And I'm, I'm not. But what's nice about having that behind me is that I can do almost anything that I want. My only limitation is me, my you know, my skill. So if I'm not doing everything I want to do, I can try something new because now I have the time. That's wonderful. And I'll be fascinated to see what you do next because you obviously have a lot of uh, interesting skills behind you. All right. Lightning round. You're on a desert island and the only music you can listen to is jazz or rock and roll. So jazz or rock and roll for the rest of your life. Jazz. Oceans or lakes. I'm a lake person. Law and order or Perry Mason. Neither. I try not to watch law shows because they drive me crazy. (laughs) Ah. (laughs) You're you're that critic, right? Uh, Uh, Bagels or donuts. uh, I could say both, but um, bagels. <laughs> All right. We are visiting with Mark Shaken, author of Unfair Discrimination and so many more things. Mark, do you have shout outs to people you would like to address? You talked about Melanie Mulholland. You talked about, uh, was it Mr. Milton? Was that your music Martin, teacher? Martin. Mark Martin. Mr. Yeah. Martin. Yeah. <laughs> and, and 
Um, he was quite quite a bit older than me, so that might be a shout out that doesn't fall on operating That's okay. years That's anymore. Right. Um, That's right. Yeah, I mean, I mean, shout outs for me uh, are the current people I'm working with. Melanie is just amazing. I, and truly, a pleasure to have her whip me into shape. Um, I've I'm the book cover was done by Demanza. Um, who's actually uh, a Kiwi from New Zealand and is lovely to talk to. He's got the, between he and I, he's got the way better accent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I think he does great work and he listens to the author talk about what are the themes in the book and what themes might be fun to to emphasize. And I think he's very creative. How did you find uh, him, by the way, for people looking for book cover designers? So uh, a Colorado uh, lawyer, uh, I'm sorry, Colorado writer friend. Um, had had used him and um, I liked that cover and I just kind of reached out and said, so what was the experience like? Because the, the, the work product was great, but what, what's it like to work with um, someone like that? I, I had talked to a lot of different book cover designers and, and like any other field, there's lots of different options. Um, I, I do book trailers because I find them fun. Um, and, um, the person who does my book trailers is on Fiverr of all things. And his, his, he goes by express video and he's unbelievable in how quickly he turns it around. But the same thing, he listens to what I'm saying mm-hmm. and generates, you know, kind of a fun trailer. Awesome. Yeah. Advice to writers. Um, newbie so, writers. Yeah. I, in the, in the writing group, what I've learned is people go for long periods of time bef- and saying that, oh, I, I, c- I couldn't sit down and do it. And so um, I think, you know, sort of the Nike thing, just do it uh, because you, you're not going to write unless you're sitting down in front of a computer. And it's not, it, it can be a scary process. Absolutely. Um, but I, I think it's important. I think more people are need the regiment like me, maybe not my regiment, but something that says, this is what I'm going to do and I'm actually going to do it and then hold myself accountable to it. Because a lot of writing is holding yourself accountable. Yeah. And I would say for anyone saying the idea of writing a book is scary because it's too big, it's too overwhelming. You just tell them you're you're not going to write a book. You're going to write one sentence. Yeah. And then that'll turn into the next one. And then you let your characters surprise you. And you just build on that. And yes, you can write what you know, but you can also, you also know your dreams. You also know your imagination. You also know what other people have experienced. So don't feel like you're limited to just what you know. Well, exactly. And I think people know more than they think they do. So, oh, absolutely. <laughs> Abs- so, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Mark Shaken, where can people find you and your work? So um, the best place to find me is um, probably my webpage, markshakenauthor.com. And the book is for sale on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other other uh, outlets um, where you'd normally find books online. Mm-hmm. And what is next? The book that ne- you're working on now? Yeah, next is Cram Down. I I may go back as I'm doing Cram Down and start to write the second book of essays. So the, the first book I wrote was sort of the memoir of the not famous lawyer. Um, and then I turned to the the series. And now that I'm into the fourth book of the series, Cram Down on the computer here, I have a whole bunch of essays that I've also written that I may try to collect those and 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 come up with a uh, a furthermore kind of. <laughs> All right. Is there, is there, Anything else you would like our listeners to know about you or about anything? 
no, connect with me on the webpage and uh, on the author webpage and, you know, follow me on LinkedIn or, or Facebook. And hopefully if you decide to read the book, you'll like it. Excellent. You will send me some pictures and some links and I will listeners and, and viewers, you can find links and photos that you'll send me on my website at ledthelaurel.com. Mark Shaken, thank you for this fascinating hour. You're going to learn something new about law, even if you even if you don't want to. It's it, There are things in here that are just going to make you say, I wonder if that's true, <laughs> like your editor. It might drive you a little crazy. You're going to look things up and it's it's been a really fun experience. So thank you, Mark. Keep writing and maybe I'll see you at the next SEPA event. I hope so. Thanks for having me on, Laurel. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, everybody. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at Amazon.com.